Welcome to the Rights of Others, and today we are really happy to have Salil Tripathi join us. Um, Salil is a writer, journalist, and in, in his words, a human rights busybody. He is the chair of the Writers in Prison Committee at Penn International. He is also currently a senior advisor working at the Institute for Business, for in, Institute for Human Rights and Business, where his work includes themes such as discrimination, protection of human rights defenders, as well as emerging business and human rights issues involving technology. Uh, Salil is also very well published. He's published several papers with the Institute itself, uh, including on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, the role of human rights defenders, and the implications of the opening of Myanmar. He's also designed a course on business and human rights at the University of Bergen, and he's co-authored several pieces um, just generally. And, and what is interesting about Salil is he was also not just a business and human rights junkie like Olga and myself. <laughs> he actually also has other interests as a journalist and as a writer. He's published several books relating to, I guess, socio-political matters of relevance in India. Uh, a few of these books have included The Hindu Case, uh, published in 2009, The Colonel Who Would Not Repent, published in 2016, and Detours, Songs of the Open Road published in 2015. Uh, many moons ago, Salil also worked at Amnesty International, at, based in the Secretary in London, and he also worked at um, International Alert. Um, Salil, welcome. Welcome, and thank you for joining Olga and I on the rights of others today. Thank you so much for having me. It, uh, it'll be lovely to talk to you, yeah. Yeah, so so Salil, I know that at the Institute of Human Rights and Business, you actually have you run a podcast <laughs> for them. So so it's so great to to turn the tables around. And and in the past, I remember a couple of years ago, you actually interviewed me for that podcast Absolutely. in relation. Both and we were talking about that. That's right. That's right. In, in an airport lounge. So so it's really a pleasure to to turn the tables around. Um, what you. Port Lounge, I've forgotten what they are. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Who hangs out in airport lounges anymore? It's a very, very good point. The world has changed um, significantly in, the, in a very short period of time. Um, so, Leal, we so you are a pioneer in business and human rights, and and um, you know I know that Olga is is when she is when I give her the chance to talk, she's probably going to talk about all these you know the, going back many years how how really you were one of the faces of, of sort of the emerging. We didn't call it business and human rights then, though did we? It was more corporate accountability, straight up, and corporate crime and commerce and human rights and conflict and sort of all these much more, um, I guess, hard edge words in a way. Um, you know, so so thank you so much for, you know, coming to join us today where we actually on the rights of others are really looking at, you know, how can we through this work really serve the rights of others and, and, and also what, how should we have evolved, how should we have evolved and how have we evolved, you know, in this space um, given, I guess, more knowledge, I guess, in this space about sort of how, how, um, how the discourse is playing out, you know, are we actually achieving the goals that we set out to achieve uh, and, and, and really to inform young people, younger people who are basically wanting to engage in this work, and particularly students who are part of Olga's class. So, so Salil, um, can you tell us, just get us started, what, what are you working on at the moment? Yes, I'm working on several uh, contemporary issues. So one is, of course, uh, COVID. Uh, I'm co-writing a paper with two colleagues on the impact of uh, COVID on garment workers in Bangladesh, which is a chapter in a book that's coming out. Um, it will be out by June in this year, so uh, on COVID and human rights. And this is about how the workers suffered during the crisis. Uh, we are also preparing a series of papers about technology and COVID and what's been happening. So one is on tracing and tracking, which a researcher in India has worked on for us. And the other that I'm working on is on facial recognition. And um, separately, I'm uh, preparing a paper on harassment of women online, women journalists and women human rights defenders. And uh, this is going to come out as a joint paper with, with by IHRB and Penn International, because this is a centenary for Penn this year. And uh, what else am I doing? Yes, there's another paper that's in the pipeline, which I'm working on with our good friend, Anita Ramasastri, 
on Black Lives Matter and one of her uh, her students, uh, Shafina Kaki, which is about Black Lives Matter and corporate America. So yeah, quite a few interesting, I mean, uh, news-oriented and uh, um, current events uh, sort of topics, yeah. Really interesting. And of course, Anita Ramasastri, she's one on the U UN uh, Working Group for Business and Human Rights and, she, and also a pioneer a in this pioneer. space. She's a real pioneer. She, she is a real pioneer, and we have tried to get her on this podcast. <laughs> we'll have to keep trying. Um, I mean, so that is such a spread of, of really, really interesting pieces. Uh, I mean, maybe, um, could you tell us a bit more about, particularly around um, some of the, you know, findings relating to the impact that COVID-19 has had on, on women workers in Bangladesh and the garment factory? That would be really great. And, and where, you know, where in doing this work, um, you know, what is, what, what do you, what's the goal? What do you hope to achieve with that? I think that would be really helpful to hear more about that. Well, so, uh, been, I mean, you know, there are about 4.5 million workers in the garment sector in Bangladesh, and between 70 and 80 percent of them are women. I say between 70 and 80 percent because, you know, employment is often seasonal, so they never, mm -hmm. and it's hugely empowering because the option for these women is not necessarily better work or something. It's often no work or much, mm -hmm. much more hard, uh, you know, working in rice fields and all that sort of stuff, if, if that. So it has significantly contributed to Bangladesh's prosperity, women empowerment and so on. But it is a very troubled industry, you know, from 2011 was when there was this big fire at a plant in Tarveen, then in 2013 was the Rana Plaza disaster. So the industry has had upheaval, you know, Rana Plaza, of course, uh, uh, people would know about nearly 1,200 people died when the building collapsed uh, with, with a lot of factories. So there has been a lot of international pressure on brands about how they should behave with, uh, uh, with uh, suppliers, which are Bangladeshi companies. Bangladeshi companies themselves are kind of compromised because a lot of the owners, the entrepreneurs are also parliamentarian. So they have an incentive to keep the cost low, incentive to keep the industry as it is without adding too much in terms of burden. And there is, of course, the relentless and pitiless logic, logic of the market that we all want t-shirts for $5 or five pounds, you know? Mm -hmm. and because we want cheap clothes and fast fashion, it acts as a downward pressure on prices, and the cost is usually borne by these workers whose wages are ridiculously low. I mean, before the COVID crisis, it was, I mean, before the Rana Plaza, I think the salary was about $38 a month, and it went up to 55, and now it's about 68 or 80 or something like that. But it's still, I mean, per month, I mean, which is not a lot of money at all. But it does go reasonably far, I mean, uh, in, a, in, a, you know, in a low income society. So there is that. Uh, now, what happened, of course, is that there was, first of all, a lockdown. And because of the lockdown, you had a lot of uh, women out of work and earning only two thirds of the salary because of the state support. Now, when you're earning only $90 a month or $80 a month, to lose a third of that, even if you're getting some money, it had impact on nutrition, it had impact on women's mental health, it had impact on women who then decided to, you know, do other work so that, you know, they could keep the family going. And we have to remember, a lot of these women could be single moms because a lot of the husbands, um, uh, their partners, could be working overseas as construction workers, you know, because a lot of Bangladeshi men work abroad. So it's not as if there was another income to depend on in the family. So that all these things kind of compounded the the crisis and of course the lockdown was later lifted in late april and early may and now things are slowly returning but a lot of factories have closed down completely there has been a consolidation and obviously you know some factories need to have fewer workers in shorter shifts so that you know you can keep the social distancing so all of this has combined to create a um, fairly difficult situation and we should always remember that bangladesh grows very little cotton it doesn't even manufacture its uh, equipment, capital equipment. So it, the industry is totally reliant on uh, its um, inexpensive and you know productive labor. So I mean, if another country were to offer the same set, um, the industry will just shift, as we know historically mm -hmm. has happened. So yeah. Can I ask, um, Salil? I mean, it's such a this is such an important issue, and. Uh, we actually had a speaker on a few weeks ago who also spoke about sort of workers, but in um, sort of factories that are supplying ultimately, you know, sort of our phones, gadgets, um, and the impact on workers. Um, workers in supply chains, uh, problematic, and we know it's it's been problematic for a long time. And we can go into, um, I guess, this predatory economic model, which is which is essentially made, I guess, even Bangladeshi Bangladeshi business sort of reliant on this model of like cheap, 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 you know. And then you pay the workers 
as low as low as low, and they're, as you said, majority female workers. Um, what is the response? Um, I mean, there has been so much discussion around this sort of around the international brands and engaging them in these types of mechanisms to get more accountability, uh, particularly in terms of the issues you're talking about. Like, can you have you been engaged in these discussions with the international brands? What has happened? Why why aren't these businesses taking responsibilities for the situation that these women workers are facing? Yeah, so it, that's a very interesting. So that you know, the brands were very quick to take on the responsibility or some amount of the responsibility for industrial safety after Rana Plaza. So you know, you had the Accord and Alliance. Two initiatives came up uh, at that time, which again, um, um, the Bangladeshi manufacturer said, "You're imposing yet another cost on us." So I mean, the role of the Bangladeshi supplier becomes very interesting in this regard. That you know, to what extent. Does he or she have the 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 autonomy to do what what they, he or she wants to do? That was one part of it. Uh, there have been very good campaigns to get the international brands to adhere to the contract. One of the problems with COVID, what happened was that quite a few companies stopped ordering or they cancelled the orders mm -hmm. that were already in place. So. If I'm a Bangladeshi manufacturer, I've already contracted to buy a lot of cotton. I'm started, I've started stitching, and suddenly this uh, uh, retail chain from Netherlands or London calls mm -hmm. me and says, sorry, don't work anymore. And of course, I've already paid, but I'm not going to get paid until I deliver. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in a way, that acted as a tremendous squeeze on the Bangladeshi. So I'm, I'm hugely sympathetic to that. Uh, to their credit, some of the international manufacturers actually acted very responsibly. They said that we won't take it now, we will take it, but we need time because some of them thought that they had an existential question. You know, if um, nobody's going to malls anymore to boutiques to buy clothes, um, what do you do? I mean, yes, you can sell online, but you know, all of that took about four or six weeks for that cycle to get started. And after that, and also there was some very good naming and shaming. The remake campaign was one, ACT UP was another, COVID tracker by the Business and Human Rights Resource Center was another, and ILO itself had an initiative. All those initiatives, had, and we were not part of it. I mean, the reason I'm, I'm able to speak with some, some knowledge on this is that with Sanchita Banerjee Saxena, who is uh, an academic at University of California, Berkeley, and she runs the Chaudhary Center for Bangladesh Studies there, she and I and one of her, her students, uh, Nancy Reyes, the three of us are writing a paper that we are putting together, which is going into these issues. And with Harpreet Kaur, who you know, and Sanchita, we have written another paper with, for this book for Morton Kiram. So that's, that's what brings us into it. But we are not playing an advocacy role here. We are just trying to understand what has happened and then make some policy recommendations out of it. Great. Um, so Lila, I would like to come in now to ask, um, it regards to this, uh, how brands reacted immediately to uh, health and safety concerns in some way as well, because it's, it's a cost that can be passed down to the uh, supplier. And obviously it's very important to uh, uh, fix all the health and safety threats um, that um, are directly um, related as well to human rights abuses. But uh, to what extent changing the purchasing conditions, changing the, the systemic uh, organization of the supply chain that actually, uh, uh, means a cost for the brand as well in terms of the brand the model now is a model that uh, uh, trickles the costs down and only uh, trickles up the and only brings up the the benefits so to what extent um, this uh, uh, that we've seen this with covid instead of the change in the in the systemic organization of the supply chain and the purchasing conditions which just there's been a massive halt so there's no there's no accountability over the supply supply chain whatsoever and it has to do among other things because of this the, the way purchasing conditions have have been organized no yeah so i mean that takes us beyond human rights into the terms of trade you know and you know how the big manufacturer can demand things of a supplier and that takes us into a different realm and where competition law should come in where we should look at it from other tools of uh, accountability and and also frankly the consumer responsibility you know i mean i'll give you one example you know rana plaza happened sometime in april 2013 and a couple of days later out of curiosity I, I lived in london those days and i went to i think new look or one of these large stores in, in on oxford street just to find you know who is who, who are the people who are very quick to sign petitions when human rights they're young people right i mean they're the ones who are very happy to sign their names and you know uh, go on a picket line and you know do Instagram memes and all that kind of stuff. 
So I went there and there were all these, the place was swarming with young kids and this was uh, April, right? So late April. And uh, they were buying clothes and I, I just casually asked some of them, you know, that, you know, would you stop buying if you knew that this was made in Bangladesh? Would you ask questions? And there was that, there was a disconnect there. You know, people so much wanted that wonderful red top, which was, you know, at $3.99 or £3.99, that at that moment, that became the priority. And I told Muhammad Yunus, the Nobel laureate from Bangladesh, in fact, had said that let there be a t-shirt tax, $1.50 per t-shirt sold, and that could go directly for the workers' welfare. It should not, you know, get, get squeezed out at any stage of the cycle. Um, but obviously, you know, that has remained a proposal. I mean, I mean, even when we were doing interviews for this uh, project, uh, similar questions came up and the similar kind of answers came that, you know, yes, it would be good if, but um, so long as, and you know, I'm also aware that, you know, a dollar fifty is not a lot of money in the industrial world, but I mean, in other emerging economies, you know, whether it's Brazil or India or South Africa, uh, you can probably afford only one $5 t-shirt in a year. So do you want to add another dollar fifty to that? I mean, every, I mean, yes, a lot of these big retail chains which sell cheap fashion and fast fashion are, of course, profiting on the volume, but they are mm -hmm. selling things very cheap and making a particular kind of lifestyle affordable to the poor in many countries. So I, we don't, we, so it's, a, it's a far more complicated uh, question and it requires, so I, I mean, you know, I mean, I, we have not even spoken about climate about which I have no expertise, so I wouldn't even go into it. But all this, you know, fast fashion and the quick transfer of goods from point A to B and shipping it from here to there and then there, um, what are its larger and what are the hidden costs? We simply wouldn't know. I um, we I, I think we had someone on a, a while back. It was the students, wasn't it, Olga, who mentioned the climate, the climate sort of implication of, of, of fashion, and and um, you know, so it's great to actually. I mean, there's some the the interwoven element of the human and the environmental impact, you know, of I'm going to say it, the predatory business model, you know, which which is basically <laughs> been in existence for as long as I've been alive, um, you know, and I I I, I have a I have a question before we move on to this sort of your work on the Black Lives Matter relating to boycotts. So Salil, you had mentioned, um, which I thought was how you started um, on this topic and how we started, and you had said um, the women who are working in this factory, they are underpaid, grossly underpaid, working under difficult uh, working conditions and without proper sort of health and safety in many of these places. But at the same time, they don't have an alternative, right? So they don't have an alternative form of employment. Um, and the, I mean, you do hear uh, calls for boycott. So, for example, boycott garments from Bangladesh uh, because the workers are mostly women who are being poorly treated and underpaid. Um, so what what is your position on on, <laughs> on this, on the boycott call? Because, it, it, you know, you're a bit trapped in a way because you don't want to support these terrible conditions. But then currently there aren't these alternatives for for this category of women workers that you have talked about. So very often boycott is a feel-good measure. You feel good, but the impact is not necessarily good on the ground. I mean, I listen to people like Nazma Akhtar and Kalpana Akhtar and other trade unionists in Bangladesh, and they always have very tough questions to ask Bangladeshi uh, manufacturers, international brands, and the campaigning organizations abroad. Don't boycott us, because if you boycott us, it will be much worse for us. You take the harder path, which is actually, you know, to improve conditions and improve the way the global economy is functioning. But boycott is the easy way out. Now, I'm not saying that therefore all boycotts are wrong. I mean, you know, I mean, for example, uh, uh, first, let, let, let me rephrase it. It's possible, boycott is possible, frankly, for high visibility industries, right? I mean, so it's uh, easy to boycott, let's say a soft drink or a coffee or something that you can buy in a supermarket or a shopping mall or something that's visible and you can stand in front of like, you know, Seema, you and I had some experience of working on conflict diamonds. So, you know, it's easy to stand in front of Tiffany's in New York or, you know, Fortnum Mason, uh, not, sorry, not Fortnum Mason, but uh, um, Mappinweb in, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the UK and, and, you know, places like that and, you know, and, and, uh, and Hatton Garden where all the, uh, all the diamond, diamantiers are and, you know, stand in front and pick it. It's easy because it's visible. People know what we are talking about. But you know Myanmar well and, you know, you worked out of Thailand in the past, Seema. And if you remember, when we look at the pipeline that was being built in Yadana and Yetagun fields and all that, 
everybody was very quick to get on Total and Unocal as the companies that were building it. But the actually actual project was Halliburton and Brown and Root. And further down, if you go, it was a Myanmar oil and gas enterprise, the government. Now, how do you boycott those? Because those are the, actually, that is where the problem starts. I mean, you know, um, I mean, uh, Total and all were uh, one or two steps removed. Now, that doesn't mean they are not necessarily exposed to the risk of complicity. That mm -hmm. risk certainly exists. But if you really want to bring about change, you have to actually target the entity where the source of the problem is and not one that is removed. So I think boycott raises that pro problem that, you know, you take the visible, the obvious, rather than the one that is really problematic. So given what the Bangladeshi, I mean, Myanmar is a great example right now. You know, everybody's appalled by what's happening and everybody wants to impose tariffs on Myanmar garment export, but who will suffer? The Myanmar women who are working in the garment factories. It's not going to make an iota of difference to generals who are who are the culprits right now. I mean, I'm and this is this is while having very little sympathy for NLD, the National League of Democracy, I'm not even going there, but it is a fight between the generals and the people. And this will hurt the people. So I think comprehensive sanctions, blanket calls and boycotts basically make you feel good as a as a as a as a you know consumer and so on. But it doesn't always lead to change. At the same time, there are some goods which are not so, which don't have a, <laughs> you know, which have an elastic demand. Like diamonds are a very good example. You know, we can live without diamonds. All right. Mm -hmm. So Indeed. targeting specifically. Diamonds, <laughs> Targeting specifically diamonds from conflict zones yeah. and putting a stiff cost on their trade was the right thing to do. Uh, yeah, I, I think, I mean, I'm going to, I know Olga's got a really good question, but I, I think what you've hit on for me is the comp, the complexity about the global, the way the global relationship, north-south around through business human rights is global multinationals and also the way we, we sort of react to the, we, we consider the impact of, of what we are calling for in relation to um you know, targeting companies. Um, uh, I, you know, one thing, and I, you said just something that was quite interesting because in the climate area, which we are now, sort of many, many organizations, and I, and I would take the position rightfully so, are calling for like a ban on fossil fuels, right? So a large part of that is, you know, how a lot of perhaps a way to avoid getting into this situation of north-south divide you know, which we've, which I've been in discussions about is really talking about, you know, production that's actually in the global north, starting with sort of the ban sort of targeting there first, and then also bringing in this conversation of the just transition, which can't be an afterthought, it needs to actually be involved as, as a prelude. Um, complicated. Olga. Um, yeah, so I I was very um, interested when you uh, introduced the work that you're doing about your work on the Black Lives Matter and uh, the business and human rights uh, community and uh, to what extent, you know, we're uh, in the business human rights scholarship, we're always kind of self-congratulating ourselves to, <laughs> uh, to you know, grasping all the uh, movements and, and the, uh, the fast fashion, the climate uh, emergency, etc. And to what extent the business and human rights community has um, actually, you know, paid any attention to to racial justice, but uh, and the issues of intersectionality between the you know the risks of uh, of the heightened risk to uh, people in the business human rights sphere. Um, that actually may be increased or not due to the the racial dimension. So I'm very interested to hear about your work and what, what's happening there. So what we did was we were listening. I mean, because, you know, I mean, we cannot ever, you know, put ourselves in the experience of somebody who is discriminated against for being for the color of his or her skin in the American context. I mean, you know, I'm, I mean, I simply, I can imagine but cannot really ever speak for them so we wanted to listen so what we did was we did two podcasts i mean two webinars fairly substantive webinars and where we looked at uh, one was in the british situation that you know how how britain had because you know everyone started focusing on what was happening in america but there were problems in britain people were trying to overthrow statues in london at that time and and so on so there was that part of it and in the u.s context what was very interesting and I would say even positive, and this is where it gets complicated, was the number of companies that were very quick in articulating their opposition of race-based discrimination. You had 
um, some products which changed their names, you know, Aunt Jemima being one of them. And, you know, there was, there was, uh, uh, there was also this move to move away from certain, certain uh, advertising that had been, the way it had been done in the past was being moved away from that. Citibank, one of the CEOs, uh, one of the C CXOs, I think was the chief financial officer, had a blog which only said, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, mm -hmm. eight times it was written down. And, uh, and, and, you know, he just said that this is what's happening. If you went to large management consultants, his law firms, all their websites were talking about that, but there was very little conversation about what will we do beyond that. People said that we will increase the number of uh, black people that we recruit, which is nice to say, but you know, there's always a issue of pipeline that, you know, it, what would happen is that it means that black men and women who are at Harvard, at MIT, at Stanford, will suddenly be in great demand, which is fine. I mean, I'm no, no objection to that at all, that people who are already skilled and at the cream and at the top will do well. The problem, of course, is inner city schools and access to school, school dropout rates, and whether those companies were willing to, you know, do something to increase, ensure that kids from deprived backgrounds go for STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. I mean, if, if that's what is happening or not, those were the kind of things to look at. Another thing was that, Black Lives Matter also happened at the same time as uh, uh, COVID, right? And so what do you do if, if COVID forces you to downsize, you have to let go of people because, I mean, you, you, you used to run a shopping mall and the shopping mall em employed 5,500 people, for example, and suddenly you have to close shop and, and you know, 500 people are going to be out of work. Have you tried to figure out who they are and have you done an intersectional analysis about who is going to be affected by that? Mm -hmm. Have you looked at... If you're a healthcare company, are you looking at the differential impacts? And, you know, in Britain, Angela Saini has done superb work. Uh, um, I think it appeared in Lancet. Uh, she wrote an article. She's a science writer uh, where, you know, about the disproportionate race-based impacts on, on, on people of COVID and the way treatment is being given. Are hospitals, were hospitals being more careful about how they were treating? So all those things, which is, you know, I mean, I've always felt that business and human rights at one level is extremely simple they treat everybody fairly, equally, and justly as you would like to be treated, which is a wonderful idea. The hard thing is when you start peeling the layers of the onion and when you try to understand exactly that, you know, much um, much used word, uh, not abused word, but used word, intersectionality, mm -hmm. because those complexities make it very different. You know, I mean, it's a bit like, I, I do, do a lot of work in India and, you know, a lot of people in India say, oh, you know, our staff is 95% Indian, you know, and only 5% are expats. Some company will say, and I would say, yes, but how many of them are Dalits and how many of them are Muslims and at what level of the company? Yeah. And then mm -hmm. they will go, oh, but we don't know. We don't ask these questions. And I, in a way, that's a good thing. But also it's important to understand what kind of society you are in and are you really mirroring it or are you mirroring the prejudices of the society? And but I think um, uh, you were also asking about how the business and human rights community is reacting to it. And I think there is a certain amount of hesitancy. I mean, we carried a blog by one of our former colleagues, Kelly Scott, and, you know, where she said, and, you know, she's from the Caribbean, she's not white, and, you know, she, she raised this question that has a business and human rights community itself dropped the ball. Because, you know, when we try to mm -hmm. go to Geneva and speak to people, we have people from the global south who are not white who come. But organizations that we are all part of, how many of them are looking like one another or from similar educational backgrounds? So I think there's a lot of introspection also needed within the human rights community. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that totally. I mean, I think I think the business and human rights um, space has has failed to be actually sort of fair and. I don't know, uh, not fair and equal in terms of the constitution of the community, the community, community itself. But but I think you know one thing that I think we have been too afraid to just call out is that actually, um, you know, a lot of the arguments that have been made against companies, you know, to take you know accountability, responsibility for the impacts. There's always been this this divide between right the harm that happens in the jurisdiction versus the harm that happens outside the jurisdiction, and we know that. You know, um, like outside the jurisdiction, you know, often when they're uh, operating in, in producer countries that where people are not white or, you know, in the communities, you know, even where the operations are, I mean, Bhopal is such an excellent example, isn't it? Like where you put the power, where you put the plant, where you put the factory, even in these countries, there's like the layer on layer of discrimination. Yeah. And, and what I always feel um, we've not really been bold enough to call out 
you know, including to the academics in this space is that, well, actually, you know, we let the CEOs off the hook. I mean, I think interestingly, you can take companies like Shell in Nigeria, um, you know, the, the people making these decisions are CEOs are sitting in Europe and they're making decisions and deciding, well, you know, the harm to communities in Nigeria, it's not so significant. Well, I mean, we say it's impacted their livelihoods, the water is contaminated, everything, but yet it takes decades to get mm. any type of recognition. Uh, and accountability, not just from the company, but also the legal system. The legal systems themselves are biased and discriminatory. Um, and I and I wonder whether or not um, we talk about this due diligence regulation that applies outside of Europe, you know, or you know, for in Canada, outside mm -hmm. of Canada, or in the U.S. outside. I mean, the U.S. has always been a little, little less scared to overstep its uh, territory's boundaries. <laughs> But, um, you know, we, how can we never have called out the race card? You know, and I think that for me, this is a really important thing. And, and I had a conversation with this one lady who um, was, was involved in the Nevsin case in Canada. And of course, Nevsin is this Canadian company and there's a legal claim involving as a forced labor, um, conscripted labor. I think it was even potentially more in uh, workers in Eritrea. And, he was saying, and she was saying, you know, if you think about it, you have this courtroom in Canada with all these judges that are mostly white men. You might have a white woman, then all the counsel, everyone is white. And then all of a sudden, you know, but you're actually not, there's not even one person of color sitting in that courtroom, yet you're talking about issues that have directly affected the human rights of people, you know, who are, who are African. Yeah. You know, she said, it's just, it's, it's just so um, blatant that you know there there is there's a lens there that's being applied that is that is um potentially like inherently i think i would say it's an un inherently unfair yeah so we we had this webinar on black lives matter in the us and uh, the the person i had as a panelist was this very distinguished human rights lawyer dominic day who is on the un committee for racial discrimination against racial discrimination of course i mean you know she's a lawyer, human rights lawyer, and she's experienced in Middle East and, and Latin America and so on. And she was telling me that, uh, I mean, I mean, she really brought home the point, which is often mistaken, that you know, when we look at colonialism, the way the colonial history is taught, we think of imperialism and colonialism purely from the lens of economic. That you know, Britain wanted spices and tea, so it went to another country and got them, and you know, ended up ruling the country, or you know. It was resource driven, you know, you, you go for a specific resource and go and the entire expansion is economic, which is of course true, but then you have to look at C.L.R. James and Franz Fanon and writers like that and Priyambala Gopal, who has written a new book too on this issue and understand that, you know, actually race is a very important component of that, you know, you did not, I mean, um, I mean, this kind of grab for the scramble for Africa, the famous book that was written, this resource grab happened, but there is a race element involved, which is not recognized. And I mean, I'm not therefore saying that every multinational company from the global north that invests in global south is driven by racist motive. That's not the point. It is, of course, seeking a cheaper wage or access to resources. But in all that calculation, the conditions in which people find themselves to be, past decisions that have been made based on racial discrimination have a huge part to play. So it doesn't mean that the corporate executive today who may be a person of enormous good conscience has to bear that burden far from it from be for me to suggest that that's not what i'm suggesting but awareness and recognition of that reality is critical and i think that requires people to be well versed not just in you know how to balance the balance sheet and how to drill holes and take out oil or whatever it is but have this broader understanding. You know, we expect our diplomats to be well-versed, so why don't we expect the same of the ex expat employees who go abroad, other than, you know, how to order beer in that language? <laughs> how to order beer is like a universal <laughs> uh, <laughs> measurement of uh, whether someone can start talking a language. If you read these... Uh, these cheat sheets, you know, the cultural guide to Japan and to India and all that. I mean, it's just full of so many stereotypes, you know, I mean, you, every time I read, I laugh because I just feel that, yes, but there is the other side. And, you know, what about your own this? And I mean, it's, it's just, I mean, that 
takes us far away from what we are discussing, but it's fascinating in itself. Yeah. No, it's very interesting. I'm Spanish, so every time I meet someone, I say, I'm Spanish, they always go, Dos cervezas, por favor. <laughs> it seems to be what everybody wants to talk to me about. Um, yeah, I want to I want to um, ask you about your background, but first, before before I do, I just wanted to connect with the, what you said about, you know, education and when uh, uh, equality starts from having um, the same amount of opportunities, but also at some point we have to look at, even if in, on paper we're putting at the same amount of opportunities that in fact they're not. And uh, the universities are have for some time known uh, that there's a big attainment gap uh, in the in the higher education sector. Even with, uh, when um, uh, black and ethnic minority background students come in with the same grades as uh, the uh, white counterparts, they end up they leave the degree with uh, with lower grades they they have less attainment gap so this is super this very structural issue of how to um uh, address this that isn't necessarily just oh you know have have the same amount of uh, white and uh, BAME, um students come into the course Mm. But I and, and so now uh, connecting with this with the students issue, um, one of the motivations for uh, creating this podcast was uh, for my students. I teach international human rights. And I also teach uh, business and human rights. And uh, so my I always ask my students, why did you choose this course? And they always say, oh, I want to work at the UN. I want to work at the uh, United Nations. I remember when myself, I did that. I said, I want to be Kofi Annan. At the time, Kofi Annan was the you <laughs> Yeah, you're secretary general. So, um, and and I, it's never, you know, it's much easier to tell them what to do if they want to be a solicitor or a barrister. It's much more difficult to tell them what what path to follow if they want to be uh, Salil, for example, or Sima, uh, which uh, which uh, I, I'm sure many would aspire to. So, tell us a little bit of how how did you end up working for the rights of others? How what was your journey that brought you here? Yeah, so I, you know, we always, uh, we are what we are because of, you know, our mothers, right? I mean, we always blame our parents for what, what we become. So in my case, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to be in a family where, you know, my parents thought very deeply about these issues. I grew up in India and my mom was uh, seven when Gandhi called for the Quit India movement. And as a school child, she used to go around singing anti-British songs and, you know, the Police were angry, but they couldn't arrest her, so they complained to her father, and the, my, her father just said, I can't help it, you know, she's just like that. Because he was a school teacher, and there was nothing they could do. So, um, and, and so, and a lot of the values of freedom and all that, I mean, the kind of conversations I had at home, that had some role in it. My, my awakening moment was 1975, I guess, which was when India declared an emergency. And this was when Indira Gandhi had a personal political crisis. She, she treated into a national one and suspended the, con not constitution, but suspended certain rights within the constitution and, and loads of opposition leaders and journalists were jailed and all that. And I was, I was 1975, so I was 13 or 14 years old at that time. And I just thought this was uh, uh, ridiculous. And, you know, I just thought it, it, it was wrong. And I, was, I, I knew a lot of people around me, including my parents' friends, who were opposing that and you know in their own quiet way so that was good they were, they, were, they were not heroes i mean but they were quietly opposing it and then i started becoming politically active and started writing my starting point was journalism and i wrote about i mean what we call in india the have-nots of the society you know so i wrote about slum dwellers i wrote about sex workers i wrote about dalits i wrote about minorities muslims in particular the discrimination against sikhs after the 1984 um, incidents uh, and so on. So uh, incident meaning the, the attack on the Golden Temple first and then the massacre of the Sikhs that followed. I went and interviewed the widows who were, um, you know, being rehabilitated. So or writing about these things always, I mean, to understand their stories and tell them to other people as clearly as possible so that sufficient outrage is created and people use whatever is in their hands to bring about change. I think that, I mean, it wasn't ever a goal, but I suppose that was a driving factor. And then I stayed in journalism. I went to Singapore, which is again, a very interesting place where outwardly it's extremely developed, you know, lots of uh, economic prosperity and so on, but inwardly a very stunted country because there's very little free speech. Dissidents don't find it easy to operate. 
There were political detainees for years and years and years. The longest running political prisoner was actually in Singapore, Chia Thai Po. I mean, he's, he spent longer in jail than even Nelson Mandela did, for example. So you have you have things like that, which were, which were also at the back of that. And while in Singapore, I was actually writing on business and economics for a, for a regional economics newspaper called Far Eastern Economic Review, which Seema, you might remember from your time in Bangkok. Mm. But uh, I used to write for them. And at that time, the Asian meltdown happened. You know, 1997, I'm talking about. So you had Indonesia going into a tailspin, Thai economy in the mess, and Malaysia about to float or not float the ringgit. And all of these financial market decisions had significant consequences for human rights, for jobs, right to work, right to, right to safety, because you know austerity comes in and police presence re reduces, and then crime rises, and all, all, all those things. So I was writing about all of it, and that's when I saw an ad in The Economist, which said that Amnesty International wanted to set up this program on business and human rights and wanted to hire a coordinator. So I thought, sounds like a cool job. I had no idea that at that time, that Amnesty had such a strong preference for people with legal background. I mean, I, I was not a lawyer. I was I studied for an MBA in America and I was a journalist, but I applied and um, I mean, they hired me. So that's how I came to Amnesty. And you know, it, mm -hmm. there was, they had done some work at that time. This was at the International Secretariat. And they had done some work on Shell and Nigeria and some work around Enron in India and the use of police force. But besides that, you know, there had been, I mean, for example, Seema, you worked on it, so you know, but there was nothing done on Bhopal, you know, which was at that time, less than 10 years or 15 mm -hmm. years prior to that. But it was not seen as a human rights issue or a human rights and corporations issue. It was seen probably as a human rights issue from the access to justice point of view, but not from corporate accountability point of view. And it just happened to be a fascinating time, 1999, because Kofi Annan was speaking about the global compact. Kimberley process was being set up. Bennett Freeman and others were setting up the voluntary principles for security and human rights and publish what you pay campaign was starting and Global Witness was coming out with all these sensational reports on Cambodia and so on and, and, and Angola and diamonds. And, and I just was incredibly lucky to be in a very pivotal position at the world's premier human rights organization at that time uh, where, I mean, I was, I wrote some of the text that is part of the voluntary principles. I negotiated some of the text mm -hmm. that went into the Kimberley process. I was in the very early meetings of Global Compact, even before the first 50 companies met. And when John Ruggi was the Assistant Secretary General, uh, I met him with Ian Levine, my amnesty colleague, later at Human Rights Watch. And all of that was going. So I, I had a great ringside view. I, I went to all those Kimberley meetings in Antwerp and, and Johannesburg and Amsterdam and New York and London basically arguing for strong targeted sanctions, uh, which focused on Sierra Leone, Liberia, mm. Angola, and DRC. So all of that was, uh, uh, I mean, and I learned on the job. And you know, once you spend seven years at Amnesty, which is what I did, you end up kind of like being able to hold a conversation on international criminal law and international human rights law, even without having a degree on that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, another great advantage I had was working with Mark Taylor, Anita Ramasasi, Gerard Pashu, Don Hubert, Karen Ballantyne, Shauna Christensen, all of them on developing the red flag, which was basically, mm -hmm. which ultimately led to the corporate accountability and prosecutor's principle that FEMA led at Amnesty afterwards. But the starting point of that was these nine situations in which if a company finds itself it raises the risk of being complicit in armed conflicts. So it was, I mean, I mean, yeah, it was a great, great opportunity to be part mm -hmm. of all these standard settings. I that when you were talking, it just it reminded me of yeah the trepidation of that time because I personally I had started uh, my PhD. I was uh, I remember my topic was globalization and human rights, and everybody's like, "But what does that mean?" And I wasn't sure. And at the time, I was in I was in London, and uh, there was the launch of the Red Flags project. And I remember being sitting at the back, and uh, and uh, Mark Taylor was presenting it, and I sitting there going, "This is exactly what." I mean that I want to study yeah. and and you know when you talk about the the initiatives one after the other it felt very much that um, 
there was something being built towards accountability. And somehow, I mean, we've continued, but somehow in the process, uh, I think corporations learn the language immediately and kind of learn to capture some of this. And we moved from uh, originally corporate responsibility to we managed you managed to push it to corporate accountability, and then we went back to responsible business conduct to you know corporate value, etc. And we it seems as if now we're pushing again towards accountability or, or liability, and we are. Uh, it's sometimes slightly disheartened, I think, with the, with how much of this has become some kind of language with a uh, massive community that doesn't move that much. I don't know if that's your perception as well. Or yeah, you know. I mean, it is. It is a kind of. Uh, sometimes you do feel I'm, I'm not been, you know, working closely on these issues since 1990. That's almost 20 something years, and you do feel you're arguing the same points again and again, you know, mm-hmm. about voluntary mm-hmm. or mandatory kind of nonsense. And I thought John Ruggie's great achievement with the guiding principles was to clarify that, you know, it doesn't matter it's voluntary or mandatory. You have the response and it means doing due diligence. And a lot of um, NGOs felt he didn't go far enough because he did not end up creating a mechanism for enforcement of the standard. But in a way, that would have taken another 10 years because to create an enforcement mechanism, you would have needed an international infrastructure of agreed law about what applies and where, and that would have been mind-bogglingly complicated, you know, trying mm-hmm. to get all the countries to agree. I still remember, I'll give one example. This was at a Wilton Park meeting, so I won't mention the country because Wilton Park is always in that context. But he, one, one diplomat from a, a, a global South country said that, uh, 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 we want a treaty on uh, on business and human rights because uh, you know we want uh, um, to rein in the power of the multinational. And John Draghi asked that he said, "Okay, I know that companies from your country are investing in the next door country, uh, so the treaty would also apply to your com- companies which are operating in that other country." Oh no, 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 we don't mean that. We mean the Western multinational. <laughs> you know that was the response at that time. So I mean, this is the this is and so and I think Ruggi appreciated that that you know there is this resistance. So, so he could have come up with something that was more catchy, but then it would not have been as you mean. I mean, you may argue whether the guiding principles have gone far enough or not, but I think it have clarified and it has led to this whole movement toward mandatory human rights due diligence that you see today in Europe and Germany and the French law and all that, is basically, okay, they're going much further than where where John went, but they're there, able Mm -hmm. to go there with some legal standing and with some laws being framed because of the the floor that he had put, you know, so that it was not a kind of a wobbly surface on which we were skating around. So I think that was was very important about uh, about the guiding principles. And yes, of course, we want accountability. It's a shame that people in Niger Delta, people in Bhopal don't have access to justice even today. And you know it's it's a matter of shame, but um, uh, I mean, you you can't create a treaty again. I'm speaking as a non-lawyer here, but you can't create a treaty to deal with two specific problems because then you leave a lot else that is not part of you know. And none of that will address, for example, the problems that are happening today with hate speech on the internet. Right? You may create a, something about community consultation. Now, community consultation is understandable when you're talking about an oil company with a community around it, but mm-hmm. who does YouTube consult with? Because the definition mm-hmm. of what is what is aesthetic and what is pornographic or sexist will vary from a person to person and culture to culture. Can you criticize religion? I mean, I would say, yes, sure, it's an idea. And there'll be a lot of people who will be profoundly offended and say that, no, this is blasphemy. And they will want to say off with somebody's head who criticizes Mm -hmm. my faith. And this is across religions. I'm not speaking about a specific religion. Every religion has these kinds of um, fundamentalist views. So so this becomes a problem. And and these are societal issues. And companies are in a position to act in ways which can do, do good or bad and our role, I think, is to guide them to make sure that they cause the least harm to start with. Let's be very modest about it. And after that, you know, build on that and then see where they can do good, that's right. I mean, it's wonderful if they do it, but but that's that, that, that's how it, it ought to be structured. Yeah. 
but I hear you. It should be do no harm. <laughs> I mean, that's what Ruggie said, you know. But then I remember when, uh, what is it, being in the UN uh, building when uh, when uh, John Ruggie presented the UN Guiding Principles. I remember him saying, although I don't think there was a written record that you see much of it, that the UN Guiding Principles are the floor, not the ceiling. And I, the problem is, I, I feel, and I, I, uh, I, it's not personal to John Ruggie, but I do feel that actually in the end, he, he also, I believe, felt that it was too short. It, they fell short, the UN guiding principles, which is why he said that. This is the floor and not the ceiling. Yep. But I think the problem is the last 10 years since the guiding principles has, has been, um, you know, when I was working in Amnesty and doing so much investigations, research, advocacy, it's, it's been, it's been um, a letdown, you know, in terms of the, you know, the action. We've seen a lot of words. We haven't seen a lot of action. And that's, yeah. that's on the company side. And also for the government, it's, it has been pretty shocking that it's been a long time. This mandatory human rights due diligence has been on the table for at least 10 years <laughs> and pushing in Europe, pushing in various jurisdictions. And, and the France vigilance law was, was, was the one that made it happen. And, and it took, um, I mean, I, I'm just shocked at how much time it's taken. And yep. then, of course, we know the law is the first part. What does the law say? And is there a sanctioning provision? And, you know, there's so many other elements. But I do feel we've become the place, the, the space compared to 20 years ago when it was corporate accountability it became, as Olga was saying, responsibility. Now it's responsible business contact, conduct. It's being, become so co-opted by the corporate yep. interest because we wanted the companies to come along you know, for the ride that we've lost the point. And, and I think so Lil, you said it because you said the communities in Bhopal still have not received yeah. an adequate but remedy. That we, we are so much fixated on the processes that we are forgetting the outcomes. Yeah. You know, so it's very nice to talk about mandatory human rights. It's like reporting, right? I remember for years we kept saying that report, report, report. And the company say, yeah, we, we met 18 NGOs and, you know, we did, but still situation turned terrible because the security forces opened fire. What do we do? We had done all the, we had tick, this whole tick boxing exercise, which is something that we have always resented and the, the need for a cultural change. Because mandatory human rights due diligence, whether it is reporting or what you do. I mean, take, take all these internet-based companies, which come and tell us that, you know, last year, Myanmar asked us to shut off internet seven times and we did it five times only. Or that, you know, India told us to remove 18,000 accounts and we removed only 12,000 accounts. I mean, you don't get a gold medal for that, right? I mean, <laughs> the 12,000 whose accounts you did take out or what about the, the five times that you did exceed? And if you exceeded to the government's rest restriction, what was the reason? Was there a gun on your head as metaphorically is what happened to Vodafone in Egypt when you know, the military said you shut off the internet or else. I mean, were there other ways you could have done? And at that time, yes. came, I mean, I wrote a blog at that time that these were the steps that could have been taken to delay the process. And, you know, and yes. now, now with so much of global commerce online and education online and healthcare online because of COVID, uh, you cannot shut off internet because, you know, yes. it, it is a matter of life and death. It's not about free speech and my being able to write an article I want. It's about um, my daughter not being able to go to school as a result because yeah. there's no way for her to attend their virtual classroom. I mean, those are the kind of issues uh, that become crucial here. And and uh, but I, I don't think there is anything that the reporting will fix. What you need is, of course, a, and, and I think Ragi, you know, who's an international relations specialist, he understands that. And I think he knew that to get there, you need an international consensus to change how the way the world works. I mean, which is of course a fantastic topic for dissertation. Um, <laughs> and it's not going to happen anytime soon. Yes. He's aware of that and we are aware. And that's why we have to keep plugging and keep pushing. And yes, it does mean it takes forever. You know, Bhopal was 1984. You're talking about 16 and 37 years, you know? Mm -hmm. And yeah. Shocking. and uh, Yeah. The world's biggest um, criminal environmental human rights disaster, corporate. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Leo, um, we've, it's been such an interesting conversation and, and, um, you know, in, in, as we wrap up, um, so what, what would, what would you sort of in closing to our listeners, you know, so who are students, but are also, um, people who are generally interested in, in, in sort of making a difference, having an impact, 
working, doing for the rights of others? You know, what is, what is, um, I guess, what are your sort of um, tips or recommendations or any advice you would give to the listener on this to, to, you know, in respect to the issues we, we've talked about, we spoke about today? So I, I think there's a great power to the idea of a complete narrative. So to try to understand the whole story of what has happened and looking at the whole context always helps. In terms, I mean, I'm assuming that the person who wants to enter the field is thinking in terms of entering it to protect human rights in some form. And I know this sounds very mawkish and trust someone from India to quote Gandhi at the drop of a hat. But one thing Gandhi did say, which made a lot of sense, and it always does, and it's a great way to look at economic, social, and cultural rights discourse, that whenever you're thinking of making any, taking any step, think of the likely effect on the most poor, most marginalized, and most vulnerable person. Is whatever it is that you're doing going to make any difference to his or her life? If it is going to make a difference, then all your doubts will melt away. And the corollary to this is where he stops, but the corollary to that is that therefore, be very aware that you know all the wonderful things we try to craft and draft in Geneva and the reports and policy recommendations and EC regulations are worth something if it is going to make a difference to you know, Rashida B in Bhopal, for example, or, uh, or you know, the Ogonis in Niger Delta, or the Wayu people in, in Serahon community and you know, in, in, in La Bahira in Colombia. I think that's, that's what we need to look at. And I know it sounds, I'm, I'm trying to elevate it to a different level. No, it's not like that. You can do it in a company. If you're working with a mining company, listen to the people. I mean, why is it that when you go uh, a mining executive, I mean, you can be a human rights activist in a mining company is what I'm saying, you know, because you're in South Africa, you're working with a mining company, you want to make sure that, you know, there is good policies in place to prevent domestic violence. There's a good policies in place to ensure that there is access to uh, reproductive health products, you know, whether it's condoms or whatever, or because of the HIV crisis in South Africa. Um, if you're running a Bangladesh factory, make sure that there's enough hand sanitizer. Make sure that when you're letting go of people, you find out who is being let go of and whether you put in place systems. When you tell people to work from home, don't just give people laptops. Find out whether they are in a position to do so. And if they're kids who need help, then there should be some childcare provision and all kinds of things. And all of this by placing that individual at the center, and that can be done from a company. And even for us in the NGO community, it's wonderful to write reports and going to you know annual forum in Geneva and all that. But if we don't go to two of those, that's fine as long as we are able to speak to the defenders and more important, the actual rights holders for whom the defenders are speaking. Because mm. the focus on human rights defenders is very important, but even they are intermediaries. I mean, some yes. they are victims themselves, but they're speaking for others, and it's those rights of others that I think we should we should focus on. And I think governments, I mean, that's the primary role, right? To make sure that, you know, if the tide is rising, all boats must rise. And then, I mean, uh, some governments are very good at that. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, COVID has shown us, you know, New Zealand has reacted, Germany has yes. reacted. Some Scandinavian countries have reacted. I've been very positive. Yes. Uh, think of other countries to learn from. So those are the kind of things I would say. I know, I know this is not a, you know, do five things and all that. So be curious, keep listening. Stay away from dogmas. Don't be restricted by law. You know, there's a very good story about John Ruggi tells about Kofi Annan when he was drafting the Global Compact. Apparently, when he came up with this idea, the chief counsel at the UN said, oh, but, you know, we can't do that. You know, I mean, this is like we are a state-based entity and, you know, our member states are states and these are companies. So he said, yeah, I know. I'm also a lawyer, is what Kofi Annan said. I know it cannot be done. Now you figure out how it can be done. And I think that's the test here that, you know, we have to all figure out ways in which we can do things to make things different. Right. That very, very interesting and, and very important, Salil. This is, it's fantastic. I just want to close with, because uh, as you said, you know, let's talk uh, to the human rights defenders and, and, the, and those who are putting their lives in the line. And, you know, just wanted to say, because um, it's literally nine days since we celebrated the fifth anniversary of the death of Berta Cáceres. Yes. Um, therefore, you know, I think it, it's a good uh, um, uh, opportunity to um, finish with the, you know, an acknowledgement and uh, yeah, and. Uh, Mary Lawlor has written a brilliant piece a couple of days ago on that on the fifth anniversary. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, we'll. Rapporteur for Human Rights Defenders. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, let's let's 
close with that with yeah you know, we need to uh, have uh, the voice uh, for those who are actually on the front line and the our energies have to be in protecting them and in uh, in um, yeah, amplifying their voices when uh, they're not being heard so this has been amazing conversation as i said at the very beginning when we weren't recording um some of the, my most exciting moments have been uh, uh knowing that i was going to uh, meet salil in person and uh, uh, go uh and listen to him uh, my first uh, ever uh international conference i think it was like oh my god i'm gonna sit next to salil in the and see i remember i was literally in between the two of you and i was like i've been <laughs> <laughs> These amazing people oh, who I admire so much. So for me, it's um, it's a privilege and an honor and an absolute pleasure, of course, to to be able to host you and to to listen to you. Thank and you very you, much. Thank you, Salil. From from my side, it's although people hearing won't know this, but it's been great to see you. It's been too long. We miss you here in London, and and hope your your move to the U.S. is suiting you. And um, yeah, I look forward to seeing you in person, hopefully yeah, sometime in twenty twenty one or twenty twenty two. Or beer or tea or wine. One that's of right. That's right. I look forward to it. Wonderful. Well, thank you so here, much, Salil. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.